Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Yeah. No, that was that was it. Just just wondering. Oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> oh God Jess. What have you spilled now? Water all over my computer. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. Oh, hang no. On. Hang on. Hang on. All over the computer. Did you have a keyboard protector? Whatever. We're just going to assume oh. that everything's okay. And we're going okay. to we're gonna keep on trucking. Okay. Sorry. Where were we before I so <laughs> ruined uh, we sorry. just ruined you know, No, we just kind of wrapped up question number two. Shakespeare show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet. Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Hamlet. And this week it's Othello 201 with special guest expert, Dr. Paige Reynolds. Welcome. Hi, so glad to be here. Thrilled to have you. It's such a good, exciting, wonderful day when we have Paige on with us. Um, So Paige, Paige Reynolds is the associate or a, I guess not the, I'm sure you're not the associate professor. There must be more of you. Okay. (laughs) You are are an associate professor of English at the University of Central Arkansas and director of the dramaturgy program at Arkansas Shakespeare Theatre. Paige is the author of several articles on women in early modern drama, and she is with us today to talk about part of her new book, which is called Performing Shakespeare's Women, and we are so excited. Very excited. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. And I also have a note here to say happy birthday, Aubrey. Even though thank it's, you, it's not your birthday today, and it won't be your birthday no. when this airs. But you're having a birthday. <laughs> I'm having a birthday. Happy on birthday! Tuesday. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. So <laughs> things are a little bit different for us during 201 level episodes. For 201 at level episodes, we operate on the assumption that you listeners have a basic familiarity with the play, so we're not going to do a synopsis. Um, If, however, you are a newbie to Othello or you just need to refresh your memory, then you can go all the way back into our archives and listen to our very first season, episode eight of our podcast, which is Othello 101. For the 201 level episodes, we want to go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to the play. And actually today, it's really just a couple of topics relating to Desdemona. But we're going to kick it off like we do most weeks with uh, our rhetorical device of the week. So in our 101 episodes, we discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and we give examples. But at the 201 level, we're going to revisit a device that we've already drawn for a 101 episode and we're going to discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance of this particular play. So in our 101 episodes, we say over and over again that identifying rhetoric helps us understand a character or give us a possible line reading. But what does that mean? So to understand that, we need to look at the specific context in which the device is used and think about the kind of device it is. Uh, This week, we are revisiting my 
one of my favorite devices. It's a form of omission, paralipsis. It's the, we're not going to talk about your drinking problem device. Uh, it's the act of drawing attention to something by deliberately not mentioning it or by omitting it. Uh, so Iago is the master of paralipsis. Uh, and in act three, scene three, he basically gives us a master class. So for example, and I'm just going to do this one textual example, because it's really all you need to understand how paralipsis works. So and to give people context, act three, scene three is the first time that Iago brings, he actually brings his plan to fruition by insinuating with Othello that Desdemona may or may not be faithful. He's laid a lot of the bricks in this plan and now he's putting it into action. And he does it through this, through this really manipulative rhetorical device of paralipsis where he kind of brings up a thing without really having to say anything about it. Uh, so to, to show that this little scene break where Cassio and Desdemona are speaking and then exit uh, Cassio exits. So uh, Jess, why don't you read Cassio and, and Paige Desdemona, please? Great. Okay. Okay. Go, Cassio. Okay. Madam, not now. I am very ill at ease, unfit for mine own purposes. Well, do your discretion. And exit Cassio. And then Iago immediately says, huh? I like not that. That's your cue, Jess. Right. Sorry. And then Othello. Because <laughs> you, you have to say that I'm not Cassio anymore. Because you are not cast. Jess is now reading for Othello. Yes, now I'm Othello. Okay, and so Othello says, what dost thou say? Nothing, my lord, or if I know not what. Was that not Cassio parted from my wife? Cassio, my lord? No, sure. I cannot think that he would steal away so guilty-like, seeing your coming. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Yes, dun-dun-dun. And later in the same act, they say some words circling around that. And then Iago also says, my noble lord. What dost thou say, Iago? Did Michael Cassio, when you wooed my lady, know of your love? He did, from first to last. Why dost thou ask? But for a satisfaction of my thought, no further harm. Why of thy thought, Iago? I did not think he had been acquainted with her. Oh, yes, and went between us very oft. Indeed? Indeed? I indeed. Discernst thou aught in that? Is he not honest? Honest, my lord? Honest? I honest. My lord, for aught I know. So what's brilliant about this exchange that Iago does is that he does not have to say anything specific. He merely needs to mention Desdemona and Cassio, kind of put them together in Othello's mind, but he allows Othello to fill in the blanks completely on his own, um, which is why Paralypsis is such a brilliant and insidious device. Uh, and it's incredibly manipulative and only like the smartest and most devious characters use it like Iago. So I just like on Monday, so three days ago, went and saw that very, very bad 1999 adaptation of Othello with Julia Stiles and Mackay Pfeiffer. Oh, you mean that? Oh, one? oh I OK. Mean, oh, uh-huh. um, oh, oh, uh-huh. yeah. Do you know this one, Paige? It's so bad. Have you seen it? I know of it. I have not seen it, but yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's peak, like, late 90s teen drama. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's the height of that, you know, it was sort of around the same times as 10 Things I Hate About You, um, but this is bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very, very bad. It's like Othello mm -hmm. at a high school, like a prep school, boarding school situation right. in 
South Carolina and everybody's privileged and Mackay Pfeiffer is the only black kid in the entire school. And he's like a basketball superstar yeah. and he's making out with Julia Stiles. And um, yeah, I hadn't seen it in several years and it was, it was hard to watch, not just because it's not good, but also because of updating the subject matter. Uh, there's a lot of gun violence, like a lot right, of yeah. gun violence at the end. Yeah. It's kind of a massacre. And some sexual violence and it's it's not it's not great um Mm -mm. and the soundtrack is wild anyway the the point being is that i just saw this um (laughs) and this this moment that we've just gone through with iago and othello in the in o is so so very well done and that it keeps a lot of the same dialogue, I guess. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, they take it out of verse, clearly. But anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is yeah. that one moment is good. It's a bad movie. I don't recommend it. <laughs> but <Yeah>. it's effective. <laughs> it's an effective yeah. device. Yeah. Um, no matter which century you put it in. Okay. Yeah. That's our review for that. So, ta-da, moving on. Super. Well, let's let's get to the meat of the episode, which is yes. why we've asked our our good friend Paige Reynolds to be here. Um, so, Paige, first of all, can you just give us like a quick, quick and dirty overview of what the whole book is about? Sure. Um, so the book is called Performing Shakespeare's Women, and the subtitle is Playing Dead. Um, mm-hmm. So I. I, the book is based on, or was constructed, the way I structured it uh, is um, from role, roles that I've played. So I, I'm an actor, and I, I started noticing in performing Shakespeare's plays as a, a female character that I was, I was, de- I was dead a lot. Uh, I, I was I was dying a lot, um, and sometimes dead on stage for a long time. Uh, and sort of the the different things that that means for the female body started to resonate with me, not just for the characters when they're dead, but in some ways uh, can parallel or or even maybe parody some of the obstacles a female character might face when she's alive and the actor portraying her as well. Uh, you know, in, in terms of her limited agency and the scrutiny she's uh, she undergoes uh, uh, just being a female body on the stage. Uh, and so uh, that's how the book is constructed. So there's a, a chapter on each of six characters. Uh, and Desdemona is is one of those, happens to be the first one in the book. Um, is, is that uh, Yeah, more? no, it's, that's great. I, I'm content to just listen to you. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, so yes, yeah, so well, you we, said you said quick and dirty, so I, did I didn't know quick how and quick and dirty, and dirty yes. that should be. <laughs> and then I got wrapped up. Um, yeah, we were like, yeah, uh huh, yes, okay, yes, yeah. Let's take us through. We're so excited. So we and chapter you- two is yes. Okay, moving on. Okay, <laughs> you know, we've asked you here tonight to to talk specifically about Othello and your Desdemona chapter, which is straight fire, as the kids like to say. Good. Yeah. Um, it resonated so much with me. I just want you to know, I was I was reading it today, and I'm like highlighting all these things, and I'm like, oh my god, that is what happens to Desdemona. Oh my god, I had one of those moments like almost every page. So oh, I'm so glad. I'm so so glad. thank you for that. Yeah, it really, really resonated with me. Yeah, the book is yeah. the book is set to come into print in December, so uh, I'm still in this sort of like. Yeah, you know, I'm still in a space of not quite knowing, you know, what what people will yeah. think about about it. So that's nice to hear. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah. 
it's a fabulous book. Uh, full disclosure to our listeners, I spent part of my summer building the index for this book. Um, thank and God. Was, thank God for that. <laughs> it was such a fun project. Um, I, I am here to build an index basically all the time. I love it. So if you're out there listening and you need someone to do an index for you, my rates are reasonable and I like them. Hit me up. And I highly recommend. <laughs> highly recommend. Um, yeah, I would say I was, well, I could talk about it for hours, but we don't have hours. So it's a great book. Everyone, you should buy it in December. But so we want to talk about uh, Desdemona and Othello tonight. Um, so I'll just I'll kick us off. So Paige, um, yeah. pretty early in the chapter, you have this sentence that is so incisive. And you say Desdemona dies because of the stories the men in her life tell about her, which like, yes, queen. The sentence, it's just, it's so real and it's so relevant to this cultural moment that we're in right now, but it's also so endemic to this play that is 400 years old. So I'm wondering, um, you know, do you think there are ways to resuscitate Desdemona's story or her narrative and to take ownership of her spot in the play or to give her back some agency either on the stage or on the page? Such a great question. And, and there are there are there are so many ways, I think, to wrestle with the idea of resuscitating these characters. I actually love that word because I sort of feel like when I'm approaching these characters, and I I I love Shakespeare's women. I I, I love the, the characters I've played and those that I, I haven't yet or or won't ever. And I and I do sort of feel like in so in so many, if not all cases, with these female characters there is, um, it, resuscitation is the work that we're about, right? <laughs> and, and, and it's so necessary. And I, there's so many different directorial ways to do this and staging things that can happen, um, I think, to help, uh, to help um, the female characters out. But one of the things I, one of the things I was interested in is, is sort of wrestling with the parameters that, that actors have to function within when it comes to the texts of Shakespeare's plays. And, and I think, you know, it's particularly difficult for Desdemona. Um, she's, um, you know, I think uh, certainly constricted by the, the lack of textual privilege that she has is sort of one way to say it, you know, and, and uh, there's, you know, even something I started noticing is how, of course, playing the character, something I started noticing is just how often she says, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. Right? So there's something very, you know, sort of like very compliant, uh, even in, in her rhetoric and, and something that textually forces her to comply with Othello on some level. And so we see like the, what is often kind of very disturbingly seen as the, you know, the most extreme act of compliance, you know, and, um, uh, in the end, in her in her dying breath, actually. So I, you know, I think one of I think one of the one of the first things for me to to do is just sort of recognize, it, even though this sounds obvious, I guess, is to recognize that she doesn't have ownership in in this text, in the in the ways that you know, and and an actor like me or anyone else, I think, who approaches the role is, is, is going to want to feel agency and to have some control. Um, and that she's she's really denied textually a, a lot of that opportunity. And so in, in thinking about, you know, in thinking about uh, what what she can do that's within her control, I, one of the images I, t 
I, this, this may be too much to get into in this answer no, to the short question. Please and, take it away. Um, <laughs> one of the things I started thinking about, you know, is that Desdemona is dead for so long on stage. You know, it's a very vulnerable position to be in. Um, and uh, the statement that you picked out, Desdemona dies because the stories the men in her life tell about her. That um, one of the things I'm doing in this chapter is sort of talking about each, the men in the play, each of them have this sort of story of Desdemona, who Desdemona is, what Desdemona is, what Desdemona means. And then in, in some way, um, dying as Desdemona, but yet still being alive, you know, because an actor does those things, really has its own way of, ch of challenging some of those narratives just by virtue of the fact that there's, there's subjectivity in a living person, even pretending to be dead. And I, I started, I had, a lot, I had a lot of time to think about the implications of, of being dead for so long and being you know, uh, vulnerable, not just as the character, but as the actor, um, it's, you, you really are, you really don't have control over what happens to your body, right? When you're, when you're playing dead. And, and I also started that connected to something that had really, that had really just like sort of shockingly stood out to me in, in rehearsals every time I heard it. And, it's when Othello starts to believe, starts to believe the stories about about his wife, he really, in fact, very quickly imagines mutilation, sort of as like this revenge punishment. You know, I'll chop her to messes. You know, and it's very graphic. This idea of like you know dissection or uh, anatomizing her her body, and 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 I started thinking about that about anatomization, um, and I came across um, I started reading some about that. I came across some really great examples from the period of uh, po poetic examples of, of anatomization, sort of using anatomizing one's body as a, as a, as a trope in particularly in love poetry. And then, and then some of those examples, it's, uh, you know, it's like a lover, it's like a lover saying, dissect me and then you'll see the truth, the truth that's inside, right? It's like turning the idea of anatomization as punishment kind of on its head. And I found that to be sort of empowering, right? um, you know, um, this, I, the, the, this sort of like metaphorical idea of kind of defiantly, sort of boldly, just opening oneself completely up, turning oneself completely inside out to show the truth. Um, and and so that was something. So that was something that. Um, that I thought about throughout that entire last throughout that entire last section. Now I don't even know if this truly answers your question because it's sort of like the audience doesn't have access to what I'm thinking about, you know, when I'm dead right. and and that sort of thing. But um, I think just in 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 approaching the role, that was that was something that I have to say wasn't it was something I struggled with throughout performing the role and, and rehearsing for the role. But I think some of the insights that I have that I'm trying to write about in this book are not so much like conscious, conscious choices I made before playing the role as they are um, insights I feel like I had through embodying the character. Does that distinction make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's sort of like what what's, you know, what's happening in the moment um, yeah. in the performance. Yeah, um, just uh, leading me to some other discoveries about that position. Great. Again, I'm not even sure if that really answers your question, but I, I mean, yeah, that's a tough question, right? Because yeah, every every actor has to tackle that 
that character on her own, you know? Right. You know, Peter Stallybrass wrote this this uh, article, you know, about um, uh, patriarchal territories. You may be familiar with that a, a, a long while ago. And he's one of the scholars that sort of, you know, clearly he, he kind of he, he finds Desdemona's character so um, or, or identifies her as so confusing or agrees with this kind of is it's, it's all I don't want to say universal, but a very common sort of um, what's the deal with Desdemona? early in the play, she's, she's got so much agency. Um, and then what, what happens throughout the play to sort of like completely change her character to someone that seems so much more compliant than she did in the beginning. So, um, in terms of this question about giving her back some agency, I mean, I think she, I think from my perspective, I mean, she, she's a very bold, active, vivacious female character in the beginning of the play. And, and, you know, I think that actors and directors and critics have sort of struggled with this question of, of how, how much she changes throughout the play because, and I don't mean this to be a cop-out, but it, because, because the text does that to her. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a textual, it's a textual difficulty that we sort of have always been struggling to figure out how do we work around that and within that. And, and make it make sense. I love it. Fascinated. I'm fascinated. I think this is also yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing that occurred to me when I was done reading the chapter, I mean, like I said, a lot of stuff occurred to me, um, but it was mostly like, God damn it. Yes, that's so true. Um, but, but the other thing I thought about was, you know, you give a lot of um, production history post restoration and I'm wondering how and this might be outside the scope but entertain me for a moment entertain the question um how might the original portrayal of Desdemona by a male-bodied actor um as we know it had to have been during Shakespeare's own time uh how how that might complicate the the objectification you talk about or and and the subjectivity of of the body this prone dead body I'm I just wonder when it's not a female body in that vulnerable position, what that means, what do you, what do you think about that? And, you know, how does that fit into this? I wonder. Yeah, that's a great uh, question. Um, and concern about the original context. I, you know, I think that as a, as a female bodied actor, um, it's, it's, you know, that's that's the thing that I'm most concerned about is what's happening when we're producing this play now. And it is a woman's body. And sort of kind of to tie back to the relevance of the first question that uh, to the cultural moment that you were talking about, I think it's I think it's so important. I mean, obviously, the same I guess the same concerns that we might that we might think of with uh, a male bodied actor uh, performing any of the female roles Um complications of, uh, you know, the, the performance of the performance of gender. You know, I don't know. It's it's interesting you know, that that famous Henry Jackson comment from one of the early, early performances, right, which is pre pre restoration um, about about the face, the countenance of Desdemona moving the spectator. You know what I'm talking about? M- moving the spectators to, to pity more after. Uh, yeah. after, after she was dead, even right, even being a pre, you know, a pre-restoration comment on this kind of objectification of of Desdemona as like a, a beautiful, like a beautiful object, 
and, right. and something something really beautiful to look at when dead, like specifically when dead. You know, that's that's the kind of comment we were hearing, you know, before women before women were on the English stage, I guess, even. I don't know. I mean, you know, what do, do you have? Did you have some complications of your own in mind? No, 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 no. I did not have an answer in my pocket. It just occurred to me as, as you know, and I mean, our last episode that we just put out was Measure for Measure. And we had been talking about what this regendered production at the Donmar Warehouse that's going on in London right now. And, um, and it, it just got me thinking about like, when the shoe is on the other foot, when the violence is done to a male body, how does that dramaturgically read for us now? as a, you know, as opposed to a female body and how does that, that one little shift in gender and, and change the context, um, if it does at all, you know? So, and it just got me thinking about that because I was like, oh, you know, boys would have played the original Desdemona and like, does that, does that complicate it at all? I, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I just, that was a thing that occurred to me and I I wanted your insights on it. (laughs) And I think that care, you know, the especially the young boy actor carries um, with it its own set of vulnerabilities, you know. Right. Um, in that kind of a situation, particularly in a, a violent or uh, sexually violent situation. Um, yeah. 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 But I, I mean, I was also I was struck in the chapter about, uh, and it comes up a couple of times about, like, if Desdemona were less physically attractive that somehow her death would be less tragic and, and like her, her beauty equates to her virtue equates to the, the supposed loss of that virtue. Like a lot of things seem to be wrapped up in how she looks. And I don't know if you, if you would please say more words about that. (laughs) Yeah. There's, yeah, there are a couple of things about, about this that bother me. So yeah, one is there's there are all these reviews, you know, many of them are, you know, from the late 1800s where um, a, a male reviewer is is sort of talking about um, how uh, how how delightful it is to watch Desdemona die. You know, how delightful certain performances, or how like or how beautiful she is once she's dead, and these sort of like really kind of gr- gross, creepy, you know, creepy ways. Um, and then there are these anecdotes about how, you know, how disturb. there's all this folklore, you know, there's all this like a performance mythology or lore surrounding Othello. You've heard all of these stories about, you know, uh, actors playing Othello who sort of can't keep their characters separate from their own actions. And there's all these stories about that. And then there's stories about um, ca- uh, audience members who want to save uh, Desdemona, right? And that's a very popular story uh, to circulate in different forms about audience members who want to save Desdemona. Um, and there are these anecdotes about how, uh, you know, uh, the violent effect that Desdemona's death has on audience members. And in, in several of them, specifically, the anecdote writer, the storyteller, is is careful to say, especially the pretty women. So like, the women in the audience were very disturbed by the death of Desdemona, especially the pretty women. Uh, or there was a woman, our favorite, you know, um, diarist of all time, Samuel Pepys, is, you know, has one. Mm-hmm. There is about uh, a, a very pretty woman who sat beside me, called out to see Desdemona. You know, so there is there is this like kind of need that these stories are expressing that uh, to, you know, reiterate what seems to be 
authored in a play by Cassio and, and really is, is not necessary otherwise, you know, that, that really is specifically about Desdemona being attractive and being beautiful and seems to sort of lead to, I don't know, I guess like what's going to make a beautiful picture of a dead woman. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end, you know, something beautiful that we can look at and that we can say, um, be thus when thou art dead and I will kill thee and love thee after, right? This, that, that feels like it sort of, that feels like it sort of, you know, leads to that. And, and yeah, you know, of, of course it's very troublesome. And the other thing that I find really, um, that I've thought more and more about, and I think in particular because I played Hermione this last summer in The Winter's Tale, this kind of idea that like the the innocence of the accused woman is what makes the treatment of her so terrible. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, had one of these women been guilty of an indiscretion, that then somehow like the violent ways in which they're treated would be justified. And I think that's kind of troublesome too, right? You know, that it's, um, uh, yeah. That, yeah. So, and it's, and it's something that even in our discourse about the play, you know, I think it's, it's surprising to me how often we lean into the, the innocence sort of being the only, sort of being the only reason that it's not okay to murder someone, right? Or the only reason it's not okay to put your wife on trial, you know, and, uh, and take away her babies. Um, and, and that's something that I think even, uh, is a more recent discovery of mine and thinking about these kinds of characters. Like that's mm-hmm. talk about that a lot in criticism and uh, in rehearsal and in performance. You know, it's one of those things that we lean into a lot. That's not exactly related to your comments no. about her attractiveness, but um, something else I've noticed. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a creepy thing, and I, I have this like dream casting of. Romeo and Juliet where Romeo and Juliet are both just total like ugly Betty nerds but they're like perfect to each other and I but I don't think any I'm not sure a casting like that could work with a play like Othello and Desdemona and have them be like not conventionally like Hollywood attractive uh, or especially Desdemona because I'm, I, I mean, you know, and you lay it out pretty well with production history and like this, this kind of weird obsession with how pretty she is as a dead person. Um, I, I'm not sure that could work. I'm not sure people would go for it. And I, I, that makes me angry. <laughs> it makes me angry as a character actor. It makes me very angry that that seems, imp- seems impossible. Like, I mean, I mean, it would be fascinating to try, but it just kind of, that, that struck me like the the cruelty and the misogyny mm-hmm. wrapped mm-hmm. up in that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's like fills me with rage. Although lots of things fill me with white hot <laughs> feminist rage these days. Right, so this is just one of many things, you know, <laughs> yeah, as it should be. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think those are important things to interrogate about just at our own performance. Um, practices and prejudices and, and, and also to sort of, you know, stir our audiences to think about and interrogate about themselves. Like what's, what's not okay about that, you know, about an unconventional casting of, of characters like that. And, and I mean, even saying unconventional makes it, I don't know, you know, but, right, but I guess right. tra- traditionally what it's been uh, yeah. and the kind of focus and criticism there has been on her attractiveness and, um, and that even being the measure of her performance in some cases, actually. 
Um, yeah. yeah. Don't you um, don't you reference uh, a production review that only mentioned Desdemona in one line that was like she was pretty and therefore good? Am I remembering this correctly? Yes. No. Yeah. It says it says Miss Foot in the role of Desdemona acted as well as she looked, um, which is. It's so it's so ambiguous, right? You know, but in a way, it's so revealing of like, you know, um, I think the the kind of conclusion I come to there is like in some ways, Desdemona can only sort of ever be considered as as good as she looks. Oh, this play just makes me so angry. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I, I mean, overall, just reading this made me think about Othello and about Desdemona in a way that I hadn't, I really just hadn't given the time to or the effort to thinking about because this is this is not a play that I linger on personally you know um so thank you for that thank you for you know bringing some bringing some insight that I think is much needed uh and really necessary and useful well thank you thank you for your interest in engaging it um great yeah yeah I just you know I really enjoyed it so I mean I hated some of it but like (laughs) that's not your fault (laughs) No, not your fault. It I'm wasn't sort of, your writing. Why did I write this? <laughs> I'm sort of in my head thinking about like designing a course around the the six plays in your book, and then also having your book as a, a companion piece because I think I think it's a really accessible way for students to think about these plays, um, especially in this cultural moment that we are having right now that is so what it is. Um, I mean, Can't I, escape it. Yeah, I just finished uh, teaching Measure for Measure and then this afternoon read three fire papers about the play. Um, mm-hmm. My students were into it and I'm thinking like, how can I build on this for the next time I teach this course? And can I even design like a, a special topics in composition class around some of this stuff? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's been a a week of like dream syllabus building in my head. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. 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 I I mean, clearly I I I think we've made it clear that um we think that your work is good. Uh this whole book is just I don't even know what word I want. Delicious isn't quite right. Oh god, I'm tripping over my words. It's wonderful. This book is wonderful and I think there's so many different avenues to get into it for the reader. Like you don't need to have a master's degree to read this book. You don't need to have a bachelor's degree to read this book. You don't need to know Shakespeare to read this book. And I think it's, but it, all, all of that, like it, that doesn't, um, you know, it's still really valuable. Like I'm there, there were things in it that I was like, Oh, footnote that for the dissertation, like that might be useful. So this book covers everything, and I think everyone listening should go buy it <laughs> or contact your university library to buy it because I, I'm pretty yes. sure it's expensive. <laughs> so excellent. Yeah, it's a great um, book. Yeah, is all thank I'm you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And the, the Dust chapter in particular kicks it off with a bang. It's, yeah. it's a very strong opening. Yeah, it was it, she was the first one I worked on. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that felt appropriate. Um, well, from and for many reasons, but um, 
yeah, Desdemona is really actually what started this whole project for me. Um, Fantastic. And I played her in 2011, so it's been a long time. <laughs> Boy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lifetime ago, yeah. 2011. A lifetime ago, yeah. <laughs> so, like, all those nights you're lying there dead during Act 5, and you're, like, making this book in your head. <laughs> I'm like, someday all of this will come together. And that's just so my gown doesn't come off in the middle of the scene. Right. Yes. Every now and then. Good. All the things you think about. More right. sweat. Do you wipe that off with my face? <laughs> right. Because this was in Arkansas, yeah, in the summer outdoors. Is that correct? Oh, Lord. This was, this was an indoor production. Okay. We, we, do, uh, we do do an outdoor production, but this one was, was indoors, which, yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It gets a little hot. Just a bit. No. Um, shall we perhaps move into our yeah. next little thing? Okay. So so this is our a new segment, yeah. how to grad school. You know, so we, we're getting the impression that a lot of our listeners are students. Uh, and there's so much to consider when it comes to choosing grad school and or academia. You know, it's a conversation that I seem to be having a lot lately in my own life, uh, especially with a couple of the first year master students in my program. Um, and so Aubrey and I decided that we might have, you know, occasional conversations about grad school. So listeners, if you have a question about grad school or academia that you'd like us to tackle, get in touch. Uh, we're at Hurley Burley Shake on Twitter, or you can shoot us an email at holla at hurleyburleyshakespearshow.com. Um, and this week, since we've got Paige with us, we wanted to talk about how and when to think about publishing. So, you know, Paige, you're clearly the expert here. Um, I have published a little, but you have published a lot. So I think that maybe just the first thing is why should someone publish? Um, and I, I know my answer, but what's yours? Um, tenure. No, but it's not the only reason. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's what, what we tell our students when we're teaching them what scholarship is and what scholarship is for and, you know, uh, inserting your voice into this scholarly conversation that's mm -hmm. happening and has been happening for uh, a long time and, and doing that, you know, doing that in, in, in print, in peer-reviewed ways, right, yes. um, is important, you know, not not just for someone's career, but for, for the field and for our sort of like collective progress, you know, um, toward more discoveries and new, new lines of inquiry, new ways to thinking about old things. So yeah, being a part of that. That conversation answer is, I think, the the most critical one is you just you want to you want to put your your foot in and, and just say, hey, you know, this is what I think. And here's how what I think fits in the broader conversation mm -hmm. world. Yeah. Scope, you know, absolutely. And, you know, you can do that without publishing. You can you can obviously, you know, sort of be aware of the conversation and develop your own thoughts about it without publishing. But, you know, when you when you prepare something for publication, as you know, it, it forces you, right. You know, right? Yes. It, it forces you to think, you know, more deeply about things than you otherwise might have to. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a, you know, that's a push that I need. Um, that's, that's a push that some of us may need. Yeah. Yeah. I've got three articles in progress right now and my brain is just a sponge oh, and it's melting seeping out my ears <laughs> and of course they're all on vastly different yeah. things so the the selection of books that's on my desk right now is so strange 
because, <laughs> because of the, the crazy different topics I'm working on. So, um, yeah, I feel that. I feel that conversation issue. Uh, so, so we know, you know, why you should publish, but also how do you decide when is the right time to publish? Like what makes an idea ready for publication? Oh Lord. I know. This is, this is, I don't, I don't know that. Like, I are are they ever ready? <laughs> no. I mean, I'm, I'm still questioning if, if any of my articles are, are, yeah. are ready. This, this may not be the smartest answer, but it, this is true for me um, that I, if I had not had strong mentorship and, and just excellent guidance, I don't know that I would have had any idea when to start try, uh, you know, start, start trying to publish. Absolutely. Um, but I just had a, a very, you know, sort of dreamy, um, and a dreamy team of mm. faculty, um, you know, when I was coming out of grad school and finishing up that, that helped, that helped me kind yeah. of figure out at least my first, my first steps in that. Yeah. Shout out to Paul Menzer, who. Paul Menzer, yeah. uh, Paul Menzer and Jacqueline Van Hoot mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in Texas. So yeah. And yeah. Paul, and Paul Menzer actually was the first person that I talked to about the book idea, this book mm. idea. And he was instrumental in, uh, in pushing me forward in that too. So he is one great. of the most generous scholars in terms of his, his time and his feedback. Um, yes. even when you are no longer his student, uh, Oh, true. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's an angel among yeah. angels. God bless Paul Menzer. <laughs> we love you. We love you, Paul. <laughs> so now you're working on publishing three things right now? Oh, girl. Yeah, I'm, I'm a crazy person is what I am, because clearly in my last semester of coursework, I don't have enough to do. See, what made you decide <laughs> now is the time to well, publish three articles? So one of them has been in progress for several years it's it's the one that's closest I, I think it, it's in um I think maybe this is my second round of revisions and it's accepted and it's you know the collection is in progress it's under contract so it'll come out whenever it comes out so that requires sort of the least amount of of brain power for me because the thing is done it's built it came out of my first master's thesis and it's just tinkering at this point and then the the other two have grown out of seminar papers that I've been working on over the last year or so. Um, and one of them, I am, I just, I loved writing it. It's um, on the winner's tale and it's source text Pandosto, uh, which like love, 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 love all of it. And that one I'm taking to the Shakespeare Association of America articles in progress workshop in March. And it's also serving as sort of impetus for the paper for the SAA seminar that I'm in, which is Signs of the Sex Body in Early Modern English Drama, which is uh, led by Kim Coles at the University of Maryland. And I'm so excited. Um, so this one, it's it's sort of in its early stages. Um, it's going to have its first public airing next week in my department. We have a little works in progress kind of situation that we'll do. And then it'll go to a larger audience at my university in March, and then it'll go off to SAA in April. And then the other one is probably the thing I've been working on the longest that isn't 
doesn't already have a place that it it's accepted. And that grew out of a seminar paper that I wrote a year and a half ago, question mark. And I've been working on it. And that went through uh, an article workshop. And then one of my faculty right now was like, hey, I think this is something that we should work on together. So we're, we're doing that. And she gave me some great feedback that uh, necessitated me cutting 2,500 words, which hurt. It hurt. It hurt so much, but it was the right call. And now instead of talking about three texts, I'm just going to be talking about one. Um, and it's a wild text and I love it so much. This is uh, The House Behind the Cedars by Charles Chestnut, which is a, a 1900 novel on racial passing in the antebellum south no sorry the postbellum south it like it lifts a lot of stuff just directly from shakespeare the the whole novel is just sort of peppered with allusions to and direct quotes from and i think the way that the novel uses shakespeare is really crucial to how it constructs race and identity and ideas of inclusion and exclusion based on race and people haven't really written about it so it's it's getting there uh but yeah so the the, uh, the books on on my desk right now i've got uh women violence and english renaissance literature and then i also have black folklore and the politics of racial representation um so yeah the i i didn't i didn't choose three articles in progress at the same time they all just sort of chose me it just and, collided yeah, yeah, yeah and also i'm a crazy person and i i can't say no but you know, publishing is important. It's it's an important thing, and I think it's maybe a little more important now than it used to be in this uh, era of academic precarity, right? Like tenure track jobs, there are none to be had. All of all yeah. of those jobs, people have them. Um, so if I would like to have a job, and I would like to have a job, <laughs> publishing is is probably the number one thing that I can do to increase my chances would you say would you say Jess that part of the decision as to like when to publish Mm -hmm. is finding like you said with that third paper you were talking about Mm -hmm. like finding that gap in the conversation Mm -hmm. oh yeah and and that sort of lack so you're like no one's talked about this so maybe now's the time for me to talk about it that that has a lot to do with when but it also has a lot to do with just like how how to construct an argument and and a publishable paper right is to point out the gap in the scholarship and and mm-hmm. clearly identify both the gap and then how I, you, whoever is filling the gap, right? Like, it's not enough to just say, people aren't talking about this, but here's why what I have to say about this is important, which is the hardest part. That's the part I struggle with the most. Yeah. Like, can't I just, can't I just <laughs> think it's yeah. cool? <laughs> why do I have to sell no. myself on how important it is? I think the the final sort of question that we have about about publishing is uh, how to do it. How do you find like the mechanics of how? Yeah, it like gets how done. do you how do you yeah. find where to publish and how do you get something accepted for publication? And I mean, God, it's a crapshoot. But I, Paige, do you want to talk through some of that nitty gritty? Well, it sounds like you're in the middle of experiencing a couple of different ways that that happens, right? You mentioned a collection. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's um, often those things are born. Actually, I mean, this is one of those cases where like the going to conferences and networking, that's not just a thing that people say. That's a that's a real thing that happens. You can be in 
one of these seminars at SAA or go to Blackfriars and and get hooked up with a group with somebody who's who's making a collection, uh, you know, and who wants your contribution right. in their edited collection. And so, you know, that's that's definitely a way in which that happens. Uh, and just, you know, I you know, in my early days of trying out publishing, um, I was, you know, just like I was on that MLA directory of periodicals, you know, and, and sort of figuring out here's, here's the thing I'm writing about where, where will this fit? You know, maybe Mm -hmm. I've presented it now I'm reworking it. What kind of, what kind of journal is looking for something that's what I have, um, and not just sort of mass, you know, mass distributing it to a bunch of places that are not going to be interested in that. And then the book is not something I thought about till later. You know, a lot of people take take their dissertation straight into a book. And by the time I was done with my dissertation and started my job, I sort of knew or I reluctantly kind of like accepted that I didn't think my dissertation was going to be a book. I didn't think it was going to be my book or the, the book that I was going to do. Uh, at least first, but I did get some articles out of it, right? You know, so I, I, I did rework some things that I could submit um, to, to publish from that too. As somebody, as somebody who has not bothered, you know, I have not bothered to try to like even put my foot into that past my, my own thesis in the program. Um, but so, so you mentioned Paige, you mentioned like finding, finding journals and like specifically tailoring who you send it to based on your subject rather than a mass mailing? Is there, uh, is there ever a, a moment where you, where you would recommend to, to somebody trying to get published to just like send it to throw it all at the wall and see what sticks or is it, is like honing in always a better strategy? Um, I don't know. Jess, you may have an opinion on this too. I, I think honing in is always a better strategy. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a, lo- a lot of journals will specifically request that too, that, mm-hmm. that you're, that you haven't submitted else or that you're not under review elsewhere. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. in, in case they want to publish it, they want to know that they're not, you know, it's not at the right. different place. Right. Um, right. Um, and, and, you know, also when you're on the other side of this, uh, and, and, Early in my job, I was asked to peer review for a couple of different journals. And and that's when you start to see, oh, this is what's happening when you send your article. In. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is some professor, you know, in the field is reading all these articles that come in and trying to, um, you know, determine if it's a good fit for this particular journal. Um, you know, so I think it behooves you to, to yeah. do some of that work ahead of time to, to try to try to submit where it's going to fit. Yeah, do them a favor and don't waste their time if it's definitely not gonna oh not gonna fit. Yeah, for sure, for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So the this piece I'm working on for uh, that's about the house behind the cedars, this novel. I've been working that specifically for two years towards uh, borrowers and lenders, which is a journal of Shakespeare and appropriation out of University of Georgia, because that's such a good fit that is that is where that article lives um and i've got some backup journals in mind but that's the place that it it needs to be right like this this article is not going to get published in shakespeare quarterly that's not really what they do uh which you know is fine everybody's got a niche right and it's also not quite right for shakespeare bulletin because that's much more about performance so it's yeah Mm -hmm. you you have to you know know your audience right and think about where something is really going to do the best 
Yeah. Um, and again, forgive my ignorance, but the MLA database is the place where you would learn that? Or do you need to go and like, probably, I mean, you probably should go and read some of the journals that you might want to apply yeah, to as well. But like, but the MLA, like that it helped, that database helps with that. Oh, that database or, is so handy. Okay. Yeah. It's got all kinds of stats. It'll tell you the readership of the journal and how big the journal is and what their review process is and how many submissions they receive versus how many they publish and the time from uh, reception to publication averages. And it's it's such a good resource. Um, so okay. if you are attached to a university, if you've got access to like an institutional library, they will almost certainly subscribe to that database. I'm not sure how else to access this non-institutionally mm -hmm. there yeah. must be ways but I don't know what they are I wouldn't know I'm just trying to speak for the for the hopeless and hapless <laughs> graduate student yeah <laughs> not knowing the first thing about how to do this um you know, I, I think so. I think I mean and Paige maybe you have uh ideas on this also but I think the the first thing to do when you have something that you think you might like to publish is go talk to someone who you trust and who has experience, right? And say, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And, you know, and get help on it. Like trying to do something in a vacuum by yourself. Oh God, why sure. would you do that to yourself? Yeah, sure. I, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So how to publish step one, talk to your trusted advisors, talk to people yeah. you care about, ask for help. All right. Alrighty. Well, let's move on to some Shakes Bubble gossip. And since we have a special guest, we're going to mm -hmm. we're going to tailor it to you, Paige. So besides your book and, and working on getting that released in, a, in about a month or so, um, what else are you working on and thinking about these days? What, what's on the horizon for you? That's it. I'm done. It's over. It's all over. <laughs> End of career. Right? End of career. <laughs> Early retirement uh, for you. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. It's such it's such an interesting question because it is like uh, it is the thing that we do, right? You know, it's, it's finishing a project that's been sort of occupying me for a few years now, and I am like, okay, what's what? What am I doing next? And uh, I have a lot of different things I'm thinking about, but I haven't made it very far down the road on any of them. But um, I'm certainly thinking about doing some work on the Winter's Tale and Hermione and this sort of issue of innocence I was talking about just a few minutes ago. I'm pretty fascinated with right now. And I'm also really interested in, um, I'm interested in some performance, uh, some performance uh, related stuff uh, around sensory friendly adapt, uh, adaptive kind of strategies. Cool. Um, I worked on something like that last summer. I have a son with autism. Uh, and so I'm, that's a that's a performance oriented thing that I'm very interested in pursuing further and kind of seeing yeah. what else comes out of uh, of that. And I'm I you know I'm like auditioning and you know hoping that I get cast in something and and things that actors do. So oh, yeah. Um, and we do we do like to ask our our guests. Do you have a social media presence? How can people find out more about you or you know read read your work other than waiting for it? To come, <laughs> waiting for it to come out on the shelves. Yeah, that, um, that's something I need to improve on. <laughs> There's really no presence, you know. Um, so, so yeah, maybe that's coming more of a more of a social media presence, right? I do have a faculty page. I mean, I, yes. I do have an actor website oh, too. Oh, great! You know, we'll link to that like, too. Uh, it's it's dick bracket time. Mm. Um, that's our flaccid dick sound. <laughs> so good. Yeah. 
so a lovely are, surprise. <laughs> we are officially starting round two of the Dick Bracket tonight. We are into our sweet 16. Um, our mm-hmm. first matchup in round two, uh, fitting for this episode, is going to be Othello versus Angelo. Paige, I feel like you might have some some feelings about who's a bigger dick. Oh, oh, I don't know, I don't know. This yeah. is a hard. This that's too difficult. It's, it's very, yeah. it's very tricky. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to well, let's you know, let's just review. Uh, so Othello. You've just been teaching. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I've just been teaching Angelo or Angelo. I've just been teaching measure for measure and my students mm-hmm. hate Angelo. They hate him. Cause he's lot. icky Cause he's and he's a dick. Yeah. He's not great. Yeah. He, he maybe tries to force himself on Isabella. That's, you know, a textual interpretation that you can make. He certainly puts her in a difficult position. He asks her to do some things that, she's not down with he then denies doing those things uh you know he gaslights her he um you know there's the whole issue of him abandoning mariana who was his sort yep. of first betrothed lady his first love i mean he's a dick he's just he's a dick i think there's yeah and he still even at the very end tries to wiggle out of that with yeah. mariana too like yeah. he, he just Oh, Angelo. Yeah. Ugh. And then, of course, men, we these have... men, these men, these men, I mean, he may, these men, these men, he, he may win. Yeah, he may win. That's yeah. competition. Yeah. I mean, and whereas, Othello... you know, Othello, of course, we know, lets the idea the this jealousy fester up until he murders his wife and then kills himself. Mm-hmm. And like communication <laughs> issues. Right. To say the least. Just so, life. you know. And, like, who's a bigger dick between the two of them? I don't know. I mean, I know what I think, but I don't want to color the listeners. But you're not going to weigh in. No weighing in. No weighing in. I mean, mean, you can. You can. You're you're a guest. If you've got feelings, feel them. But we like to maybe stay a little unbiased. We're Uh, we're so biased. Sometimes. I'm (laughs) definitely biased. biased. (laughs) And, yeah. you know, Iago didn't make it into the... He didn't, but you know what? He, he went didn't. up against Tamburlaine in round one. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Against Tamburlaine. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So he's already had his shot. Yeah. He has. He has. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the pairings were so... Even in round one, we really tried to have people be evenly matched mm-hmm. in terms of their dickishness to uh-huh. see which of like the worst of them would advance. Right. And yeah, so Iago didn't make it through round one, surprisingly, even though he is a gigantic asshole. Yeah, but I um, mean, he, he <laughs> lost to probably the only one who could have beaten him, frankly. Early on. Yeah. 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 We didn't save that matchup. We, we went right for it. So yeah, gotcha. yeah he got eliminated pretty quick. Okay. Mm-hmm. Othello versus Angelo. All right, everybody. Vote. Oh, <laughs> Vote on, on Twitter. Yep. Vote on Twitter or on Instagram or just shoot us an email yeah. and let us know what you think. We will tally up those votes and it'll be on a later episode. Uh, it's just going to get worse. That's <laughs> <laughs> so great. It's just, oh, you should see some of the rest of these matchups. Like, it's only oh, going to get uglier. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Who well, knew? Sony Dixon Shakespeare. <laughs> so many. <laughs> like, and what we discovered, you know, the just even in the first round is like how many rapists and attempted rapists mm-hmm. there are. Like, there's so much violence against women. Yeah. That right. I mean, it's 
so awful. Yeah. <laughs> Had me questioning once or twice. I'm like, why do I like this stuff again? Like, why, why do I continue to do this? Oh, right. Cause it's really good, mm-hmm. but also, uh, right. Right. But also, yeah. Yeah. Uh. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Uh, we hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Mm-hmm. And thank you again so much to Dr. Paige Reynolds for joining us. It was such yes, a treat. Thank you. Um, Paige, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Oh, God. Come back anytime. Literally anytime. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you just remind us when and where people can get their hands on the book? Um, the book uh, is coming out in the middle of December. Great. Um, and uh, it, the publisher is Bloomsbury Arden, so um, their website will have information, but it will also be available uh, on uh, at Amazon and other places like that. Let's Great. hope. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Great. Alrighty. Easy. Well, Good to know. We when that when that actually comes out, we'll we'll throw up a link for our our people if anybody is into it. Uh, and I guess that's it. So tune in next week, everybody, for another non-Shakespeare play. We are doing Middleton and Rowley's The Changeling 101. If you are Ooh. into uh, violence against women, this play has got it. <laughs> so come um, Yay? I don't. I mean, also, it's just like awesome. a good play. You're so awesome. <laughs> really sold it there, Jess. Thanks. Good job. I mean, okay. So, like, that's not the only thing about the changeling. It's a great yeah. play. Come on back. Yeah. And it's a great play. All right. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at Jonathan shoe.com or find his albums on itunes all opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study i got six six packs in a pink cadillac ten thousand dollars in a sack in the bag it costs 35 i don't aim to use back i got no bullets just a wheel to buy Back in the so cell. sorry, Paige. This is not usually how it goes. No, not at all. Please. <laughs> get all of this oh out of the comedy way. of errors. I'm so fascinated by all of this. This <laughs> is the fascinating part. <laughs> how the sausage how gets made. Magic. <laughs> okay. All right. That's so since since we've sort of... God damn it, Jessica. Get your shit together. Okay. Wait, right. what did you knock over now? The mic. <laughs> the world is falling apart.